Judge Sutton was born in Saudi Arabia and raised in the suburbs of New York. He graduated from Williams College in 1983. He was a history major who also played soccer and baseball, an all-around uh, superstar. And uh, his international experiences led him actually to think that his life's work might take him into the Foreign Service. Uh, and he did spend a summer in Jordan on an archaeological dig. But he ultimately enrolled at the Ohio State Moritz College of Law and graduated first in his class in 1990. Uh, he was so successful, first in his class, that he went on to uh, clerk for Judge Thomas Meskel of the US Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and then Justices Antonin Scalia and Lewis Powell Jr. on the United States Supreme Court. None of this was very bad for someone who in a moment of reflection conceded, law was probably a third choice for me. I don't know if you remember that quote, but I dug it up. Uh, so that was pretty good. Uh, after finishing his clerkships, Judge Sutton worked as an associate at the law firm of Jones Day. And then he was appointed Ohio's second solicitor general in 1995. He argued before the Supreme Court nine times, winning nine of the, sorry, a dozen times, winning nine of those cases. Uh, he also brought many cases to the Ohio Supreme Court, and this is one of my favorite things. He won the best brief award from the National Association of Attorneys General four times in a row. Uh, he served as Solicitor General until 1998 when he returned to Jones Day as a partner and then he was nominated and confirmed to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2003. He was recently appointed to the 2018-2019 Supreme Court Fellows Commission by Chief Justice John Roberts. Judge Sutton's talents and distinction are a rare point of agreement across the political spectrum. Senator Orrin Hatch described him as one of the most respected appellate advocates in the country, and Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe praises him for writing, quote, with a grace and intelligence equaled only by a handful of our greatest jurists. Judge Sutton is not only distinguished and excellent, but he is generous in every realm of his life as a teacher, as a scholar, as a mentor. Tour. He shares his expertise regularly uh, from the bench and from the lectern. He has served as an adjunct professor of law at the Moritz College of Law, his alma mater, since 1994. And he has served as a visiting lecturer at Harvard Law School since 2012. He comes honestly by teaching as he hails from a family of teachers. And I just learned his wife is also a teacher. Uh, he can teach everything from seventh grade geography to Supreme Court litigation, state and federal constitutional law and appellate practice. He also has managed to find the time for scholarship, uh, not only today's book, his third book, uh, but he has also co-authored a book on state constitutional law and the law of judicial precedent. Uh, and you'll hear more about the book, so I have some things to say about it, but I won't say them now, because you're going to hear from lots of other people who've thought about it a lot more than I have. Um, but finally, I just want to say a word about his generosity as a mentor, in addition to his generosity as a teacher. Um, uh, and I know this firsthand from those of my students who have gone on to clerk for him uh, and had that privilege over the years. Since taking his seat on the bench, Judge Sutton has been very generous to our alumni, and uh, he has hired and mentored many of them as clerks, at least five of whom have gone on to clerk at the United States Supreme Court after clerking for him. One of those, of course, is our own Professor Aditya Bamsai, uh, and we are thrilled, as I am sure Judge Sutton is thrilled, that he will be among those on the panel today. Uh, so it is a wonderful panel that you have before you. I am not in charge of the introductions for the rest of the panelists, only that uh, of Judge Sutton. So I will um, 
hand that over to someone else. But let me just say what an honor and a privilege it is to have Judge Sutton back here uh, as a friend, as a colleague, and just as an incredible person, jurist, and intellect all around. So welcome, Judge Sutton. Thank you, Dean Galibov. Um, boy, that doesn't get more generous than that. Uh, thank you. Um, well, this is really uh, fun for me because this book project all started with a talk at UVA 11 years ago. Uh, I was invited by the Law Review to give a talk about state constitutions and school funding. I did that talk. It became an article in the Law Review in 2008, and it's one of the chapters of the book. And so with the book done, it, I can't think of a better place to be uh, than UVA, um, a great school with great professors. And as I can attest from my many UVA law clerks, a school with an awful lot of loyalty to its um, alums. Um, I'll tell you a story about this, this one article in the UVA Law Review. Um, it's about school funding, and in Justice Scalia's last majority opinion for the court, it's a case called Kansas versus Carr. He embraced a lot of what I'm about to tell you today, um, and he had no support for that proposition other than this UVA Law Review article that I just mentioned. Uh, of course, when I read his opinion, I gloated, I puffed up, and I thought, oh, the justice knows smarts when he sees it, and I just love it that he loves my article, and he's such a discriminating guy, and how wonderful he has this citation. Then I thought about it a little bit. I mean, I really liked that thought, but then I had another thought, which was that that year it happened, I had one of my former clerks, who was a UVA law grad, clerking for him. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe this wasn't Justice Scalia's idea. Maybe the law clerk, out of an act of loyalty to me, put the article in front of him. Now, I, I know Justice Scalia, he is very careful, and he would not have put it in as a citation if he didn't agree with it, but it did dawn on me that he was not familiar with the Sutton canon and read all my articles, and that maybe this really was due to my former clerk, who was clerking at the time. Then I had an even darker thought. John wasn't being loyal to me. He was being loyal to you in University of Virginia. He could have cared less uh, that I had written the article. What John cared about is it came from the UVA Law Review. So that's a complicated story with complicated answers. And I think I'm just going to leave it at that. And uh, I'll embrace my interpretation. You embrace yours. Um, well, there's nothing that inspires more confidence in a speaker than a stopwatch. So I'm going to start mine. And I'm going to go for about 20 minutes to set up the, the panel discussion with a little bit of discussion about the book, why I wrote it, and so forth. Um, let, me, let me give you a, a story that I was coming out of church recently, and uh, a doctor friend of mine, not a lawyer, stopped me and said, oh, Jeff, I hear you wrote a book. That's terrific. Um, is it an autobiography? And I said, no, not exactly. And he goes, well, is it a mystery? And I said, no, not exactly. And he goes, well, what's it about? And I said, state constitutions, enthusiastically. Long, awkward pause. Uh, you sure it's not a mystery? Uh, so there actually is some autobiography in this. And why don't I start with that? I mean, what is it, Emerson's line about history's all biography? And I might add, this is my line, biography's all autobiography. There are a couple reasons I wrote the book that I, I really motivate me and have motivated me for a long time, ever since this talk in 2007. Um, thing one is if one were to read con law books, if you were to go to the law library and pull off all the books on the shelves about constitutional law, American constitutional law, you would see that they all focus 
on the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. Supreme Court, and neglect, barely mention if they mention at all, the state courts and the state constitutions. So that seems unfortunate, seems to not tell all of the story. The other thing you would see if you read these books is a very similar narrative being repeated time after time, and the narrative goes something like this. State courts, state governors, state legislatures as the bad guys, villains in the stories, with the U.S. Supreme Court as the hero in the stories. Now sadly, in American history, there's quite a bit of um, support for that narrative, and the last thing I wanted to do was to set out to contradict it. But I did think it would be worth supplementing the narrative with some stories in which the state courts, using their constitutions, were the heroes of the stories, and even a few stories in which the goats were the U.S. Supreme Court interpreting the U.S. Constitution. So that was one feature of kind of one explanation for doing this. Another was that I served as State Solicitor of Ohio for three and a half years in the 1990s, easily the best job I ever had. And in that job, I realized that state constitutions really were relevant. Most of the cases I was defending, or at least some of the biggest cases I was defending, arose under the state constitution. So I found myself very puzzled that more people weren't discussing this, more people weren't teaching it in law schools. So that's really when I started teaching the subject and I guess eventually led to the book. The third thing is my last 15 and a half years as a federal judge. I'm very nervous about the direction of the federal courts. Today happens to be the first day of a confirmation hearing, you may have noticed, uh, for a slot the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, one could make the argument that the last presidential election turned on electing someone as a proxy for a vacancy of a nine-member court, which is to say we elected a president to fill one slot on a nine-member court. That really suggests the role of the U.S. Supreme Court in construing the U.S. Constitution has not just grown over time, as it surely has, but is reaching a point where perhaps it's not sustainable. Um, I, of course, can defend the American people taking these confirmation battles so seriously because they're not fools. And the more power a governmental body exercises, the more power the U.S. Supreme Court exercises, the more the people are going to care, rightfully so, who the five-member majority is and what their position is in a lot of issues. So I don't, I'm not surprised by this, but I'm very worried about the trajectory. Uh, what we seem to be on, I, my uh, first year of law school was 1987, Bork hearings. I would say, at least during my time in thinking about this as a lawyer, we seem to have a situation where red rights are identified and the blue rights are, well, if you can do that, we can do this. If you can do that, we can do this. If you can do that, we can do this escalating constitutionalization of more and more of the most significant issues in American government. I don't see any way to get off that path, and I'm very worried how it ends, because the way I see it ending is a pretty likely one, an inability to fill these seats, uh, particularly if we have a president from one party and a Senate from another, and that really sounds like a catastrophe. Um, if that doesn't happen, I'm still worried that eventually the American people, if we have this rights escalation, will begin to think of the U.S. Supreme Court much like they think of the Senate. It's just another political body with red robe judges and blue robe judges. So I don't like that path. I don't think it's a great path. It's certainly not a great path for a federal judge. Um, and I think there's only one alternative to that path, uh, and that path is a detente of some sort. And now how do you get a detente? Is it really possible? for the left and right, the conservative justices, the liberal justices to say we're going to stop innovating new rights, we're kind of leave, leave things as they are. Um, that seems very improbable, a little bit dreamy. 
uh, given the fact that we Americans embrace judicially enforceable rights uh, in such a great way. In fact, I doubt there's a country, not just in the world today, but in world history, that embraces judicially enforceable rights in the way we embrace them. So I am a bit of a dreamer, and I still think it's possible that Path B can prevail. But the only way I see Path P prevailing is we have a detente at the US Supreme Court, e.g. the federal courts, supplemented by more attention being paid to rights innovation at the state courts under the state constitutions. One benefit of that approach is you don't have to engage in winner-take-all approaches. You get state courts, a state like Virginia, construing the Virginia Constitution, recognizing a right unique to Virginia, perhaps shared by some other states. Maybe even it's a regional right, or maybe it's a regional issue. But the point is, you're not focused on winner-take-all fights and nationalizing everything, which seems to have such serious consequences, including perhaps flipping the last presidential election. So the rest of, really, this is the point of my book. How do we get the state courts more engaged in construing state constitutions, and how does this work? So a little bit of background to kind of set this up, particularly for the 1Ls, if there happen to be any here, probably a mistake, you should be studying. Uh, <laughs> but don't, don't give yourself away at this point. Um, so uh, um, let's imagine a hypothetical with four implausible facts. Um, it's the NCAA finals of the basketball tournament early next April, whatever that Monday is. Implausible um, fact number one is my alma mater, Ohio State, is in the finals. Don't get carried away. Implausible fact number two, you deserve this. I hate to hit people when they're down. UVA is in the finals of the basketball <laughs> tournament. You gotta get past the first round to get to the finals. Uh, <laughs> forgive me. I, they were number one on my pick. I, I wanted them all the way. I, was, I can't say I was un, as unhappy as you were, but I was very close. So implausible fact number two is UVA is in the finals against Ohio State. Implausible fact number three is Ohio State is tied with UVA. I'm pretty realistic about that. Um, just as the game is uh, ending, uh, the UVA star player drives the lane. He's fouled egregiously by the Ohio State player. It's a two-shot foul. And implausible fact number four is with the game tied, um, a great position in which UVA fans to be. Um, the UVA player misses the first shot. I guess that's not that implausible. But what is implausible is the UVA player does not take the second shot. Um, that's never happened in American basketball, going down to CYO third grade. Everybody takes both shots when it comes to two-shot fouls in American basketball. But it turns out American basketball players are quite a bit more smart than American lawyers. Because when it comes to challenging state and local laws, American lawyers frequently take just one of the two shots given to them. What do I mean by that? There's not a single individual right in the US Constitution that we you know, prize and care so deeply about that not, did not originate in the state constitutions. The greatest era of constitution writing in this country, indeed in the world, according to Gordon Wood, was between early 1776 and before the summer of 1787. Before, in other words, the framers drafted the original constitution and several years before they drafted the Bill of Rights. So all of these rights guarantees started in the state constitutions. All of the rights we care deeply about still exist in the state constitutions. And they are separately enforceable when it comes to challenging state or local laws. Now one brief point of history, which took me a little while to figure out, and um, I, I hope will be useful to you. 
This opportunity of two shots in attacking state and local laws did not exist at the founding. The framers had something else in mind when they created American federalism and in splitting the atom of sovereignty, which seemed like an incoherent idea. And if you think about it, when you split atoms, very big things happen. It's a dangerous thing to do. But their basic idea, the compromise they tried to work out, was to say, well, this new federal government would have certain discrete powers over here, regulating interstate commerce, the military, and so forth, coining money. And over here, the states would have everything else. So the way to think about it is two sets of governments with exclusive spheres of power, largely, limited by constitutional restrictions on those exclusive spheres of power. So that's why the Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government initially, and that's why the state constitutions only initially and to this day only apply to state regulation and state power. Well, that of course is not the world we live in. We have the 14th Amendment, which directly applies to the states. And of course, we have the 1930s Supreme Court cases expanding congressional power to give Congress power essentially to regulate most areas of American civil and criminal life. So today, we now have a world instead of exclusive spheres of power, almost completely overlapping power, which is why you now have two limitations on that power. The incorporated rights from the federal constitution and the pre-existing and still existing state constitutions. So the idea of two shots, the basketball idea, really only comes to play with most of our rights disputes in about the last 50 years, when it really becomes relevant with the Warren Court leaving the stage after it incorporated all of these rights. Now this second shot, the second shot under the state constitution, is not only an independent shot, gives you a chance to knock out a state or local law if you lose into the federal ground, it's also arguably the better shot. It's least, a, it's least a shot that one should take seriously and state courts should take seriously when they have them before them. Why might that second shot be better? Why might a state court do something the federal Supreme Court has already disagreed with? Well, the text of the state constitution might differ. Different words often have different meanings. That's not surprising. The history of the guarantee might be different. You might have a state that really prizes religious liberty. Take Utah, Rhode Island, and Maryland, given that they were founded by religious dissenters. Virginia, some would say, really prizes separation of church and state, depending on how you read Madison's and Jefferson's work. Either way, the point is, the state court can pay attention to that history, pay attention to that language, and construe it differently, even from identical language in the US Constitution. U.S. Supreme Court has no say over what the Virginia Constitution means or the Ohio Constitution. They're the final interpreters of it. Another reason why they might disagree is something all of you know, even those of you who are 1Ls. You can have different methods of interpreting the constitutions. We know we have originalists. We know we have living constitutionalists. We know we have pragmatists. Why in the world would a state Supreme Court that is, has a majority of originalists follow a living constitutionalist U.S. Supreme Court decision. Vice versa. Why, if the roles were flipped, would you follow something that approaches constitutional interpretation differently from you? The last reason is perhaps the best for law students. And if, if there's one thing you learn in con law and law school, is that some of these general terms are not amenable to one and only one interpretation. Even if you have two people approaching the interpretive debate through the lens of originalism, Many of these guarantees are written in such general language on reasonable search and seizure, due process, equal protection, that it's really 
hard to maintain that there's one and only one way to interpret it. In that world, why wouldn't we embrace the possibility of different interpretations of this similar but highly generalized language? So why would this be good um, for us, for the country, for courts, for constitutional interpretation? A few reasons. One, this is not just abstract. This idea that American lawyers are more foolish than American basketball players is really quite provable. Uh, there was a case a couple years ago at the US Supreme Court called Utah versus Streif. Fourth Amendment case about unreasonable search and seizures, application of the exclusionary rule. Goes through the Utah Supreme Court, uh, the Edward Streif's lawyer only raised, raised a challenge to the search based on the US Constitution's Fourth Amendment. The Utah Constitution has a very similarly worded guarantee, but Streiff's lawyer, for reasons of his own, did not raise the guarantee. At the Utah Supreme Court, in a decision written by Tom Lee, conservative and high, highly respected, respected justice on the Utah Supreme Court, they wrote 5-0 protecting Streiff under the Fourth Amendment. The decision is reversed at the US Supreme Court, ironically written by his old boss, Justice Thomas, uh, but it's a very close decision at the U.S. Supreme Court. It has an anguished dissent by Justice Sotomayor. Streif is now in jail because his lawyer did not raise the state constitution. I'm quite confident that at least three members of that five-member court would have used the state constitution to keep him out of jail. There's no, there's no rights guarantee more important than liberty, and there's no greater protection of liberty than being kept out of jail. And yet, Edward Streiff is in jail because his lawyer does not know about the US Utah Constitution, e.g., not as smart as an American basketball player. So this is not just abstract. There's someone sitting in jail because of the failure to appreciate this point. There's another benefit to this, um, which I think has been too long ignored in American constitutional interpretation. I'll bet if I got everybody in UVA's law school, I'll take everybody in the university I, it's very hard to find agreement on any one thing these days, but I'll bet I could get agreement on this. That Justice Brandeis' insight about the laboratories of experimentation in the states would be something that everybody would embrace. In other words, one of the virtues of American federalism is we can try out policy experiments in the states. If they work, we can expand them to other states. If they really work, we can nationalize them. I don't think anyone disputes that Brandeis had found a real insight there. Now what Brandeis was referring to was policy making through state legislatures. What I don't understand is why we don't embrace the same approach when it comes to labs of constitutional interpretation. We have 51 constitutions. They're filled with lots of general language. That language is amenable to more than one interpretation. And it's particularly amenable to more than one interpretation given the many different approaches to constitutional interpretation. Why wouldn't we take the benefits of the Brandeisian lab and use the same approach when it comes to the constitutional interpretation? Have the US Supreme Court be a little more patient before it nationalizes a right? In other words, let's see how the results work, see which interpretations are more convincing, more persuasive, and then adopt the best one. Or maybe, at some points, decide that regional differences are okay. We don't need Ohioans telling New Jerseyans how to run their lives or Texans telling Montanans how to run their lives and certain individual rights. We'll let them take care of it themselves through their own constitutions. It seems to me something worth trying. It's 
very hard in American law today to find a truly neutral principle. Everything I'm saying today is truly a neutral principle. It does not favor Republicans, it does not favor Democrats, it does not favor liberals, it does not favor conservatives, it doesn't favor originalists, it doesn't favor living constitutionalists. Proof of that is one story I already told you. Justice Scalia, although I've undermined this point a little bit with the full story, in his last majority opinion for the US Supreme Court, embraced everything I'm saying by saying, in, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, the states are free to experiment all they want in the aftermath of our constitutional decisions by interpreting their own constitutional guarantees however they wish. So if Justice Scalia believes that that, that you know, has some credence, at least from a conservative side. Before Justice Scalia, and let, you know, I, one of the most significant justices in American history and certainly one of the most significant in the last 50 years, if you go, to, go before that and look for one of the most significant justices before Justice Scalia, you'd look to Justice Brennan. And Justice Brennan, in a 1977 Law Review article, embraced everything I'm saying, at least to the extent it's the same point that Justice Scalia made, which is the state courts are free to interpret their state constitutions however they wish, and they have no obligation to defer to, to lockstep, the U.S. Supreme Court decisions construing language in the U.S. Constitution. It's truly a neutral principle. I mean, if Justice Scalia and Justice Brennan agree on something, that's truth. I mean, I mean that's, it's, almost, it's almost a matter of faith. Um, if you think of Venn diagrams, the lines barely overlap with them, and here they overlap. Now, it's probably a little unfair given some of the pr criminal procedure rulings, but it's a neutral principle. Take my word for it. The last thing I would say is, as a matter of history, there have been some times where our lack of appreciation for the importance of state courts and the independent value of state constitutions has had real serious consequences. And so one of the chapters in the book is about the Buck versus Bell story. Let me just make sure I'm not committing fraud. Okay, this is going to work fine. Um, so one, one story in the book is about the eugenics movement, which takes place in the early 1900s. Uh, the gist of it was it was the great new scientific advance that we could improve society, improve human beings by controlling them through breeding. Uh, people that were smart and talented, had no physical disabilities, could breed, and those with problems, the so-called feeble-minded, would be sterilized. So it's a ruthless doctrine, a very Darwinian, and um, it was accepted by many state legislatures in the early 1900s. In the first phase of the movement, about 15 states adopted laws that allow states to involuntarily sterilize either the feeble-minded or those who had committed certain crimes. The part of the story you probably know, or at least dimly remember, is the part that leads to Buck versus Bell, the infamous 1927 U.S. Supreme Court decision, three imbeciles are enough, is the line most people remember, whether in law school or out of law school. Justice Holmes writes it, Chief Justice Taft joins it, Justice Brandeis joins it. There's just one dissenter, Justice Butler, who unfortunately, for the sake of history, does not explain his explanation or why, why he dissented. Uh, but in that case, they reject due process and equal protection challenges to each of these state involuntary sterilization laws. After 1927, 15 more states passed these laws, and it's really an unfortunate chapter in American history, and the eugenics movement really doesn't die out until about the 1970s or 80s. Here's the part of that chapter I'm gonna guess you don't know. Before 1927, there were eight lower court challenges to state eugenics laws. 
Six of them were in the state courts. Many of the challenges were under state constitutions. Seven of the eight challenges come out the right way, which is to say, by the verdict of history, which is to say they stop the proposed sterilization in its tracks, or in some cases invalidate the state eugenics law. Uh, the best decision is a decision from the New Jersey Supreme Court called Smith, and it really gets the issues right from the verdict of history. So I, I hope you got the point here. The goat in that story was the US Supreme Court, hero state courts, and using the state constitutions um, to protect these individuals. The really, truly sad part of that story is what happens after 1927 is what, and this is what lies behind my book and why I'm so obsessed with state constitutionalism. What's stunning is that after 1927, no one goes back to state court to challenge these sterilization laws under the state constitutions. All right, so just think about what just happened there. We all realized that after 1927, no state court could use the 14th Amendment, equal protection or due process, to invalidate an involuntary sterilization law because the US Supreme Court had spoken, supremacy clause controls. Nothing about the Buck versus Bell decision has any say, any impact, any influence on the 50 state constitutions and the 50 state courts that construe those constitutions finally. And yet no one was willing go, to go back to state court to stop the sterilizations. Over a 75 year period, there are 60,000 sterilizations in this country, more than half of them coming after Buck versus Bell, all because we American lawyers are more foolish than American basketball players and do not understand that we can take the second shot, and what's worse, won't even take the second shot after winning. All right, so we go back to my hypothetical. This is like UVA wins with the second shot three national championships in a row, and then the fourth time says, I don't think we'll take it. All right, so they knew how to win, they knew what it took to win, and they stopped doing it because the US Supreme Court had spoken in 1927 about a different constitution that might as well have been from a different country because it had no more impact on the meaning of the New Jersey or Ohio Constitution than an interpretation of the French Constitution. So there's something wrong with that situation. And that problem which happened in 1927 is a problem that's repeated itself with Edward Streif a couple years ago, and I suspect is happening once a day during the week, every weekday, of the, um, every weekday in the year. Because there's so many state lawyers that do not know about and therefore do not independently try to protect their clients' interests by relying on the state constitutions. So um, that's my, that's, I, I think I came in under 20 minutes, I was pretty close, and um, I think now we're gonna have them say why I'm wrong, uh, or, uh, or so, something along those lines, which I'm so eager to hear. Uh, if you hear someone muttering at the front, guess who it is. Uh,